Welcome to Exploration Radio. My name is Ahmad. Hi, my name is Steve. So today's episode is going to answer a question that we often get on this podcast, which is why is the industry cyclical? So Steve, why do we want to talk about this topic? One of the things that we do in the podcast is look back at the past fondly. It's inspiring to be an exploration geologist, but the reality is that our industry is cyclical and that we have the sword of redundancy hanging over us. Have you ever lost your job? Yeah. I mean, I think most geologists will say that they've been made redundant at least once, if they're lucky once, probably more times. So I think there's a general feeling in the industry that you will lose your job, even if you're good at what you do. I've also lost my job. And there are many people out there listening who've lost their job many times, despite being good at what they do. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, you know, for the last couple of years, if you were a geologist in this country, in Australia anyways, you would have been told by the AIG, the professional organization that handles geoscientists, that there were at one point like up to 55, 60% of geologists unemployed. I mean, it sounds bad, but the reality of it is that's not a, a rare occurrence in this industry. And no, and at the top of the cycle, you go through a phase where we can't get enough geoscientists. We seemingly never learn. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, there is that um, old joke, and I think it'll come across in this episode as well, is that during booms, geologists are great, and during busts, they're all taxi drivers. Uber now. Ah, oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. So one of the things that I've noticed is during the boom, everybody wants to talk to you. Everyone's interested in your skills, uh, and then you hold on for dear life during a bust. And I guess, um, so we're obviously approaching this from the angle of people being employed in the industry. But the reason why we wanted to do this episode is to actually show people that this cyclical nature of the industry actually controls a lot of things that happen. And I think we will return to this episode, this podcast, several times in the future. You'll realize that the cycle itself has many derivative effects that you might notice in our industry that are really fundamentally caused by metal prices in the first place. So today we're going to talk to Hedley Widdop of the Lion Selection Group about why our industry is cyclical. That's right, Steve. So the reason why we want to talk to Hedley is because he works for an investment fund called Lion Selection Group. And one of the strategies this fund and Hedley use is to invest in the resources market based on where they believe the commodity cycle is. So Hedley should have some insights on why our industry is cyclical. So come join us and let's find out what Headley has to say. First of all, thanks a lot for doing this, Headley. Oh, my pleasure. Just a bit of background about yourself. How did you get to where you are right now? I'm a geologist. I uh, studied economic geology, I guess you'd say, at university in Melbourne. Uh, got a job with Western Mining. From there, I worked for seven or eight years as a geologist, mainly in mine geology roles and resource geology roles. And a job at Lion came up in 2007, so I applied for that and got it. Lion is essentially a listed fund, which is a proxy portfolio for uh, people who don't have the confidence all the time to look at those companies themselves. We can pick them, manage the investments, etc. Since I've been at Lion, I've been involved with the Australian parts of the portfolio, parts of the Asian portfolio, the African portfolio. So I've sort of worked across all aspects of the business. Now I look after uh, three or four of the investments directly, um, as well as being 
uh, involved in investor relations for Lime. And the part of the market that, that focuses me on is uh, the junior miners. So how would you describe your current role? Are you an investment manager? Are you... I don't have a title, but uh, think of me as an investment manager. Okay. Uh, it's probably the closest you'll get. So one of the reasons that we wanted to get you on is pretty much everyone that we've talked to so far in this podcast, they've often mentioned that one of the root causes for a lot of the problems in the industry tends to be the cyclic nature of it. In the industry, we kind of accept that it's always going to be a cycle. So in your words, can you explain the reasons why the industry tends to behave in a cycle? Yeah. First of all, whenever investors are involved, there tends to be cycles of some amplitude or another. Uh, so, you know, they're interest and uh, the appeal of a certain sector will wax and wane over time. And it's usually got to do with the fundamentals of the sector. So, you know, it, it happens across all of them. But in mining in particular, there are two characteristics of mining businesses which are unique. Uh, the first one is they have extreme revenue volatility. Um, because commodity prices come and go, they go up and down uh, and miners can't manage that. They're subject to it. They're price takers. And, and they're right at the pointy end of that. So there are other industries where there are price takers, miners, it's quite extreme. The other thing which overprints itself on that is that the assets in mining are finite life. So uh, it means that uh, anyone who owns a mining asset has to invest in trying to extend it one way or another, or to find other things that are similar, or to buy other things that complement that business. So there is this constant investment which is required. And within that, there are opportunities for the valuation of a business to fluctuate quite significantly. First of all, with the commodity prices, but secondly, with the discovery, you know, uh, the value of something can go up quite considerably. Equally, uh, if you've got that part of the equation wrong, then the value of the business can go down considerably as well. So once you superimpose on that, investors are coming and going, they sort of wax and wane in other sectors, they tend to really jump into mining and then really jump out. So it's quite extreme, but uh, that's, that's the basic uh, root cause of it. Miners need money to build their businesses and to keep them going. And without investors to provide that, it doesn't work. The times when they're providing the money, you have a boom. The times when they're not, you have a bust. How much does sentiment come into the way the market is volatile? Well, sentiment is driven by a range of things. Uh, there has been big changes in sentiment you see at the top of uh, a boom and then right at the bottom of a bust. And they're often brought about by different things. So if we look at how busts have changed into booms through history, um, sometimes it's been brought about by miners being successful, cutting their costs, finding more things, uh, and generally their business is becoming more and more appealing. Um, there's also been commodity price changes which have brought uh, the industry out of bust and back into boom. Um, and more recently, uh, I would say it was probably more of financial engineering uh, as much as anything. So if you cast your mind back to 2015, a lot of what was being said in the media about miners generally was that they're financially irresponsible. They had overloaded balance sheets. And in the case of BHP and some of the other majors, they had these silly progressive dividends, which were going to be maintained uh, year after year, irrespective of how much it would cost the business. The moment the BHP said they were walking away from that, uh, the industry sentiment really turned around. So all of a sudden, and it was almost overnight, um, the sentiment of investors towards miners went from being risky and overloaded to being cheap, because as soon as you didn't have to focus on the balance sheet, you could think about what they actually were in a valuation sense, which was a good opportunity to get in. Uh, so sentiment is incredibly important, but sentiment can also overshoot. And you see that typically at the top end. So when you have a boom, uh, the aspect of sentiment, which really gives away that you're right at the top, is that everybody is telling you it's different this time. It's going to go on for a lot longer. 
So, and that's where sentiment usually gets it wrong. But uh, all sentiment is, is more and more people flocking into uh, the same sort of idea and uh, buying into the concept. So in that sense, how does, say, mining compare to other industries? Well, compared to making widgets or, uh, you know, selling things in shops, with without the aspect of disruption, which can sometimes get in the way of other industries, um, it's quite different. So, you know, miners uh, sell into commodity markets which uh, where the price is determined by supply and demand. Supply and demand change on timeframes which are different uh, to each other. So it's a lot harder to bring on supply than it is to bring on demand uh, in a lot of cases. And demand can dry up as you go from one phase to another as well. So, you know, the influence of China in the last 15 or 20 years has been amazing like that. The demand grew very, very steadily, but supply was extremely slow to catch up. Um, once supply did catch up after sort of 15 years of that, then we've seen uh, commodity prices really suffer. But overlaying on that as well is the effect of speculators. Um, so they drive commodity prices in the same direction as the fundamentals do, but generally much faster. And also uh, probably well past the point where you could say that's that's where supply and demand should should dictate the price is. You can see cyclicity in a lot of other businesses as well. So if you're an ice cream salesman, you'd know inherently about cyclicity because you know in summer you can sell ice creams and in winter you probably can't. But you don't see too many ice cream salesmen buying 10 new ice cream trucks right at the end of summer. You'd be much more likely to see them investing in their business when you're coming into the new season, which is the thing that miners typically get wrong. So you can't mention the likely impact of this cyclicity on mining companies. Do you care to comment on what that effects are, say the people and companies, the business planning, even investor sentiment? Yep. So the money coming in and the money going out is is how it affects the miners. And and let's think about it from the point of view of the two different groups here. There's the, the companies which are extracting the mineral from the ground and selling it. And then there are the people that own the companies, the investors. And investors are motivated by a profitable investment. Now, that could happen overnight. They buy the shares, they go up, they sell them again. So they have the luxury of being able to be very short term if they wish. Miners don't have that luxury. Uh, they have to invest in a business, um, see it become profitable, et cetera, if they want to survive. And if they can't do that, then sooner or later, they'll be found out and the business will be pulled apart one way or another. So they have these non-overlapping um, timeframes on which they need to invest in the future. Um, who moves towards who, who gives in? Typically, the money doesn't give in. So uh, the investors are the ones who tend to carry the day and uh, they influence the miners' mentality quite significantly. So how this influences the miners is uh, when you're in the early stages of a boom, typically the bust is still very fresh in their minds and survival is what's on their minds, making themselves more profitable, particularly on a cash basis. As you get further along and uh, the concept that you can make more money from producing more of a commodity starts to infect the mindset of both the investors and then also the miners and they say well let's get bigger uh, so growth becomes order of the day as you go through the mid boom and then particularly the late boom it's all about growth it's like uh, don't worry about what cost is let's just get more of this on a ship and, and i'm generalizing then as you go into bust, uh, generally all those things unwind and it's about survival. So uh, capital costs get kicked down the road, operating costs get slashed. And uh, so we know what the effect is on people of that. Typically, you know, the best time uh, to be losing your job is during a bust and the best time to be finding a new one is during a boom. Um, in terms of the business cycle, then this has an overprinting effect as well, because uh, as you um, stop expanding and as you slow down production, perhaps, um, or stop replacing production, then it affects supply and demand. I think generally speaking, then the long term 
effect of that, of how growth affects the industry and companies wanting to grow, is that you end up with bigger and bigger companies. The larger miners now have tended to be run by non-mining people uh, or a predominance of non-mining people on the Excos and the boards, which I think is a major concern. Um, okay. We back miners to be miners, not to be anything else. And it's hard to think that they could be specialists in their field without having specialist people running the business. Um, and then, you know, I think you probably have a cultural effect in the bigger miners as well. So contrast ourselves to 20 years ago when the biggest miners in the world were about the same size as uh, some of our mid-tiers now and had a much shallower management structure. The ability to deploy capital into the best possible areas dictated by their understanding of the business was much more, uh, much more prevalent. Yeah. What we find ourselves now is that the big companies are probably more able to grow through acquisition than they are through any form of investment in their own business, except extracting efficiencies and things like that. So that has changed mining, I think, um, quite significantly. Ahmed and I are both exploration geologists. Exploration is one of the areas strongly affected by the cycle because it's longer-term growth. Yeah. So do you think the change in big company attitude to exploration is having a long-term effect on the stability of exploration? I do. Yeah, I do. Um, I, and there's several ways, but uh, the one of the phenomenon which I wonder about, so, you know, uh, it's hard to cast this in concrete as an answer, right? But uh, you look at how much exploration has been done and by who, just basic size of company, and I, I'm referring to uh, data like that that you see from Richard Shoddy, uh, who's a bit of a doyen on, on that kind of stuff. Um, exploration spend has shifted from the larger companies to the medium-sized to junior companies over the scale of about 15 or 20 years. And I wonder if that has got as much to do with the larger companies having enough deposits in their portfolio and uh, not enough in terms of targets to move their dial so that they tend to move more towards investing in companies in a, a mergers and acquisition sense. Now, the problem that that creates is that the big companies have the biggest budgets because they have the most money. Uh, and they also, you would presume because they have the most projects and ground, they would also have the most targets. Um, but they have a, a bigger distance now between uh, the chief geologist uh, who is running a program and making the decisions in an exploration technical sense and the person who runs the company and dishes out the budget. In more of a mid-tier company, that distance is shorter. And in fact, it's probably a direct report or a right-hand relationship rather than being two or three orders removed. In an organisational structure. In an org yeah. structure, yeah. So there is, uh, there is a, a much different level of trust and relationship between the people in the mid-tiers and, and in the juniors uh, in terms of making exploration decisions and investing for the future. Where that starts to manifest in who can spend and when, I think, is that the juniors just typically don't have enough money to be able to commit to a three or four year budget. Uh, the mid-tiers do, and that's what we're seeing them start to do. Although, Steve, you probably have a far better idea of this than I do. Uh, the level of trust and the dollars which are available uh, within these companies to uh, commit themselves to exploration themes um, is much more than what I think the majors are able to do because... Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're caught up on uh, managing things in a, in a different way. There's much more of an investment bank mentality, I would say, that manages those, uh, those big miners. The medium tiers still are miners and still do all the classic disciplines well, and the juniors are usually funding constrained. So, I, I, yes, Steve, I, I definitely think it has an effect and has done over that, that uh, period of time. I work for a mid-tier and I choose them deliberately because exploration is still fundamentally important to their business. One of the pieces of advice I got from Roy Woodall many years ago was always join someone where expression meant something at exco or board level. 
I think that's very good advice. And Roy understood the industry very well. And uh, I, I think we all know that if you don't explore, you don't find. And if you don't find, you don't mine. Um, and it is no one's moral responsibility within mining to be exploring. But if it stops, then uh, you, you know what the answer is. You'll run out of ore sooner or later just about everywhere. Uh, so I, I'm certainly not saying that the majors need to be doing more there, but I'm saying they're culturally probably less able to. And uh, what you said, Steve, confirms what I think, which is that the mid-tiers are probably much more of the growth engine of the sector now uh, in that they're capable of making uh, quick decisions uh, or much quicker decisions and focusing that into the areas where the investment will mean the most and exploration will be one of those areas. So just keep that going. One of the things I've noticed is a lot of the mid-tiers are swallowed at the top of the cycle. Yeah, yeah. The mid-tiers of each new cycle are people who emerge from the junior level through discoveries. One of the problems we face is at the beginning of each cycle is that we have to start again building the culture of long-term growth. Most of these mid-tiers are new each cycle. They're essentially facing long-term cyclicity for the first time. I, th I think you've been reading my private diary, Steve, but uh, it, that, that's my thought exactly. Uh, and over 15 or 20 years, I mean, we've seen a great deal of the Australian mid-tier landscape swallowed up. And some of those companies had uh, really led the way in a number of exploration fronts, et cetera. Um, and uh, them having gone into some of the bigger companies, not only has their activity stopped, but a lot of the people who were championing exploration efforts within those have found themselves isolated and have either left the industry or gone to a position where uh, they can't be nearly as influential over a budget as what they used to be. And I think what that means is that some of the science has been sequestered uh, and or lost, which is, which is a great shame because, uh, you know, it's an iterative business exploration. Uh, you need to think of it from an, uh, a scientific point of view and you also need to think of it from an investment point of view. And uh, if you uh, adopt only one of those, then you won't get it right. So without the science, um, you don't have much of a chance. And uh, with a lot of that science having been pushed into places where it's inaccessible, um, it's, it's a really great shame. But as you say, it will be, will be rebuilt. And one of the things which I've taken a great deal of interest in over the past three or four years is uh, the acquisitions of projects by larger companies uh, as they grow, Northern Star, Evolution, et cetera. Some of the M&A between uh, some of the more promising juniors, uh, such as Sirius and Independence to create the modern day Independence. Uh, has created companies which are well capable of doing that. And I think uh, they're the places where we're going to see some of the genuine global-scale mid-tier companies emerge from over the next five years or so. Do you think there's a, you know, the way you run a smaller company and the way a mid-tier is run or the way a major is run, do you think that evolution of companies uh, is also one of the reasons why, you know, what made you really successful, you can't really do that as a company grows because it has to be run differently? Yeah, mid-tiers and juniors definitely run themselves differently. And it's it's all got to do with where the money comes from. If you don't have cash flow to rely on, then you're reliant, heavily reliant on the investment market to prop up all of your activities. And for that reason, you need to hit the milestones that you've said you're going to. Um, and your strategy is reasonably constrained by how well that can be digested by the market and how well you can articulate the changes to it as time goes on. Mid-tiers have the luxury uh, of having a substantial amount of cash flow coming in. And uh, they often have these areas where they can invest with quite a bit of impact as well. And then look, uh, all, all businesses and enterprises get to a level, it doesn't matter what you do, uh, where you can't generate the same explosive return on your investment as you used to be able to, because you've got to the stage where you've got so much cash uh, and the business value is so large that in order to make more than just a splash on that, you have to be doing something quite large and unusual. 
um, you know, companies like Amazon in the retail space are very unusual in that regard in that every time they break into a market, they make another big difference to their business. So they've grown faster and to a greater extent than just about any other company in history. In mining, I, I mean, just have a think about the kinds of things which BHP could do to double their valuation. They'd have to buy another BHP. That's that's pretty much it. That's right. Yeah. Um, whereas you think of a, a Northern Star or an Independence or something like that, maybe it's not to double their valuation, but I tell you what, one very, very chunky discovery uh, in the right place could very easily cause a, a substantial difference to the valuation of those companies still. And, you know, a junior company that finds something that looks like a mine, they'll go up 10, 100 times. So you can only get that growth at the, at the micro end. But the reason, you know, that the mid-tiers have so much promise is that if they find something, put their foot on it, they, they can fund it internally. I think it's interesting you, you make the comment about BHP. Uh, having been someone that worked in that company, you come to the realization very quickly that it's very hard for you to have a significant positive effect on their share price. Mm. But if you don't do something really well, you could have a significant negative effect on that share price. You know, so from the point of view, like compliance and things like that, there's a reason why those companies become compliance driven because yeah. you know, every little cog in the wheel can have a significant negative effect on the on Yeah, the that's price. right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the focus necessarily becomes quite different, doesn't it? So, yeah. yeah. Are there different investors that back the company early as opposed to people that back the company late? There's definitely a smaller subset of investors who will back a company early. And uh, at, at the stage in the cycle, which we've just come out of and where we are at the moment, that is still quite a small subset. Um, as time goes on, I think uh, they will become, you know, investors will become more and more enthusiastic about exploration, et cetera, because they will see discoveries take place and they'll, they'll be happier to invest in penny stocks on the basis that they could find something big. We all know that that's a very, very small chance of it happening, but it makes you feel pretty good if you've got one in your portfolio when it does. So we talk about the negatives of why what happens when the market is cyclic. Uh, is there any positives? Yeah, look, there's definitely there's definitely some positives of, of it. And uh, you think about the value creation through a boom from an investment point of view, that is that is a definite positive. Uh, so if you're able to buy on the first day and sell on the last day, then a massive positive. Let's flip that around though. Um, from the point of view of the culture and the richness and the fabric of the industry, one of the major benefits that the cycle produces is that it flushes out all the trash at one point and it does it fairly regularly. So, uh, you know, it's a bit like a reality check. So when you have a bust, to quote Warren Buffett, anyone who'd been swimming naked uh, is exposed when the tide goes out. And during a bust, you quickly find out who's not doing their job right. And a lot of the companies go through a soul searching to improve their practices on the very basic of metrics. So. A boom will cover for many, many sins. And, uh, you know, if you, if you cop an extra 5, 10, 15, even 20% on costs during a boom, generally the, com the commodity price or the sentiment which allows you to raise money will cover for that without a problem. In a bust, you don't have that luxury at all. Uh, and with that, it means that you need to focus the business on what it is that it does. So you get a better look at who the better miners are, what the better practice is during that part of the, um, uh, the cycle. And if we didn't have it, then I think miners would become more and more and more lazy, which would yeah. be a shame. Um, some of us who are more puritanical about how things get done, you know, you know, you focus on best practice and things like that. You really do figure out who is capable of doing that uh, during the bust. And there's been some terrible stories uh, emanate from, you know, discussions about what's happening around board tables and management committees and things like that during the last five or six years as companies have said, well, 
what do we do to bring our costs into line with what our commodity price is now doing? And uh, to my understanding, there's been a number of boards that sort of all look at each other and go, well, <laughs> we don't know. Who do we bring in to tell us? I tell you what, if you're running a company and you don't know what to do to make yourself uh, profitable in the environment you find yourself in, then you probably should be looking for a job elsewhere. So it, it exposes those things. And you probably don't think of that immediately as a benefit, but uh, because you can't have this refresh every maybe five or 10 years, um, it means that you keep being brought back to what the best practice is. So in your words, so basically companies would, would sacrifice efficiency during a boom and then the bust allows them to become more efficient? Well, I, I don't think it's a conscious decision. Let me answer it this way. I, I saw a presentation by a gold company managing director. It was a Canadian gold company quite recently. And uh, there was a, a long retrospective in that about how they'd adjusted their costs in the period from 2011 through to 2016, which was as the gold price went through the most pain in US dollar terms. Um, and the reason why they'd adjusted costs was because they had to. If they didn't do that, they would not have survived. So their cost in 2011 was well above where Spot is now. They'd be out of business. And they went through and talked about all the initiatives that they'd taken uh, in terms of reducing headcount, looking at efficiencies, doing things properly. And the CEO had been reasonably new to the business at, at the start of that period. So was able to go through and get rid of uh, any sort of exuberance on the basis that it wasn't him that installed it. But at the end of it, uh, when the question and answer session was on, there was a question asked, um, 2011 to 2016, you had to reduce your costs, so you did. But what happened prior to that, from 2000-ish through to uh, 2011, when gold price was going up, was there any effort to keep a lid on costs? Um, and what would you do in the future if, as and when, the gold price goes back up again? Uh, and his response to that was uh, pretty blunt. He said, well, as much as we would like to, I think what you'll find is that investors will be throwing themselves at us and insisting that we become bigger, uh, produce more from the mines that we have, um, and uh, take on more leverage to, en to enable us to do that without taxing shareholders too much for it. Mm, that's interesting. So I think that's where a lot of this short-termism comes from, which, and, and look, when you think about it, uh, they own the company, so they should be able to make the decision. But that's why you have a board of directors that are supposed to be experts in these things, and the council can go back and forth. So. Uh, I think the industry, as much as it might have a very good intention at points, probably lose the sight of that, particularly uh, as you go through the boom and you get a bit relaxed about things. You know, the biscuit jars at mines get full, the quality of the instant coffee goes up, uh, et cetera. So you commented a little bit about whether the industry has historically been always cyclic. Um, was there a time that it wasn't? Has it, has it always been this way? Looking at the, the period of data where you can assess cyclicity, you have about 50 years of share price data, et cetera, which is readily accessible, and you could say is representative. And within that, yes, there has always been cycles. Going back further than that uh, with general market data, we know that financial markets have always been reasonably cyclical, whilst they've been in any way, um, you know, had a number of investors involved. So I think it's fair to say that in the modern financial market, yes, mining has always been cyclical. Um, and for that reason, I, th I think it probably always will be as well. Uh, so we, we often talk about whether or not this is something you can overcome. Can you smooth it out? Uh, for it to be smoothed out, the effects on the miners uh, would have to be sort of, uh, I think you could see them making decisions to invest through the cycle. I, I do. But in order to do that, I also think that they would need to be close to privately owned or at least in a situation where management had a high degree of autonomy over the budget to the extent that they could say, no, this is the time where we're going to be buying things. 
And that is an incredibly brave thing to do for any management team because, you know, we all thought we were at the bottom in 2013. We had two more years to go and 14 and 15 were horrible years. So, uh, you know, imagine making those decisions then if you weren't quite sure that you could make money out of those businesses, uh, even if things got worse. So I think cyclicity will always exist and uh, there is hesitancy um, from companies to, to do anything which is too rash, which would enable them to smooth that out. The other thing is, remember, we've still got finite mine lives and we've still got commodity prices which will be uh, tradable in the open market and volatile for that reason. So it's hard to think that without removing the drivers of cyclicity that, uh, that it could ever not be. So that market sentiment you think will almost always drive the industry? As long as an investor can make money on the copper price changing by buying a copper miner's share uh, and as long as someone who's an exploration bug can buy uh, five different gold explorers shares in order to try and expose themselves to the value uplift of a discovery then there will be cyclicity from the investors in the mining market. One of the things that I quite often get asked is what is the future of geoscience and how does the cyclicity affect geology in particular? Exploration geologists feel the brunt of the cyclicity probably more than anyone else. As a discipline, one of our main outputs is the mining industry. The universities that produce us are businesses in their own right. They are trying to understand the cyclicity. They get punished during the bus periods in terms of bums on seats so do you think geology is badly affected by the cycles? <laughs> well, it seems to produce a lot of taxi drivers every uh, five or ten years. So, yeah, I, I, I think the profession is definitely affected. Um, when I started studying in 1997, uh, there, was, there was about 50 ads for geologists in the weekend paper, which I saw and I thought, well, it's great to be studying geology because there's plenty of jobs around. By the time I finished in 2000, uh, there was no geology job ads in the paper and I was extremely lucky to get a job. One year, uh, the industry is taking on sort of, I would say probably between 50 and 100 graduates and then only uh, three or four years later, they're taking on close to zero. There's a huge swing in that and, and what that means for skills uh, going through as well. I mean, um, if I was still a geologist, uh, I would be amongst the very few who had between 14 and 16 years experience. So you end up with these patches where it's relatively easy to get promoted because there are very few other people who can be promoted uh, into right, positions yeah. as, as everybody else moves up. And it creates these age gaps in there as well. Yeah, yeah. The industry will suffer for the lack of professionals coming through. But the effect that you're asking about, Steve, is on the universities as well. And uh, I, th I think they suffer uh, more than most because they need to fight for their funding year to year in some cases. And uh, you can't do that on academia alone. You need to have people coming through who are being educated and pushed into the industry for the industry to support it backwards. The, the, the argument is always um, true that if people come out of uni and a lot of the companies will say, well, they haven't been trained correctly, you know, we need to teach them 90% of what they need to know. I didn't get taught anything about being a mine geologist at university. Uh, I was well versed, I think, in most of the um, the academic stuff. But you know, mine geology is about grades and tonnages, and it's got a bit more engineering in it. There's a big interaction that could take place there, which would not only smooth out the skills requirement, but uh, could have a lot to do with making sure that there are still people coming through the system when uh, the industry is uh, is not as profitable as it would like to be. There have been there have been some great examples of industry supporting institutions uh, in a couple of specific cases. Uh, there are some in Queensland, some in Tasmania, some in Western Australia, which very well or have been at least uh, industry supported. Um, and I think that's an area where the industry could certainly learn uh, from from its own history. One of the themes this season is innovation and how we are preparing for exploration and mining in the future. The short cycles make it hard to make a business case for trying to improve exploration. 
we run out of funding long before we get a chance to act on change. I agree with your sentiment entirely. Uh, it's, you know, the business cycle itself usually gets to a point where it will embrace uh, investment in innovation when it's almost too late because the cycle is almost finished. And then as you go into the bust, all of the good work which was started either gets forgotten or at least um, put into a back cupboard for a while. Uh, and, I, and I see it across all forms of innovation in the sector too, though, Steve. Uh, it's not just um, the geosciences, although I think the geosciences and their applicability to exploration in particular have a longer time frame of development than quite a few of the other things. And because they don't generally impact on profitability or operations costs, et cetera, uh, on a short-term basis, they can be quite difficult to justify. I mean, innovation needs runs on the board generally in order for it to be widely adopted. An exploration technique can be wonderful, um, particularly in theory, but uh, it will probably face a lot of hesitancy until it's been shown to discover something. And even then, uh, unfortunately, with exploration techniques, it's usually the person who's applying it, which has um, added the brilliance to it rather than just the technique. I, I think it's something which the industry is probably always going to struggle with. And uh, it could be that with the bigger companies that we've got now, they are much more capable of supporting that kind of research over a long period of time. They're, sh they're certainly showing, I think, some uh, aptitude towards that. And I think um, some of them have recognised that uh, their ability to explore in their own right is extremely limited unless they find themselves uh, better techniques which can be used over uh, periods of time to delineate targets, uh, perhaps even delineate um, resources uh, with lesser use of people or with uh, better use of computing power. So that might be an area where the bigger end of town contributes to exploration a bit more so than uh, just boots on the ground and, and putting drill holes in. Um, it, we, that might be a trend for the future. I guess that's where I was trying to take the comment. Traditionally, it's the mid-tiers who do a lot of the exploration, but the mid-tiers get swallowed. So it's the juniors now who do more of the heavy lifting. Yeah. As an industry, we need to fundamentally change, but realistically, it's only the majors who are stable enough to act on that change. Yeah, and uh, you need some exploration champions within them. Uh, I, I think maybe as their workforce is stabilised, I mean, they've been through turmoil and there's been lots of people leave and were even afraid to make decisions, I suspect, for a long period of time. So if we had a good five years uh, with those people being able to really get their boots on the ground within their their existing roles within those big companies, uh, perhaps that will crystallise some form of investment and, uh, and and forwards direction. So you obviously work for a company right now that uses the, the cyclicity of the market as an investment strategy. Mm -hmm. um, do you care to comment a little bit about how you do it without giving your trade secrets? Oh, look, I'm, I, I, I don't fear anybody else knowing about this. When you know that something is cyclical, you can expect it. Human nature makes it very difficult to predict turning points. Uh, people are much more likely to extrapolate a future trend than they are to think that something is about to turn. So uh, you have to constantly remind yourself of that and be a little bit disciplined. But as the cycle evolves, uh, certain behaviours tend to take place. So after the bust and everything's gone out the door, uh, you start to see money creeping back into the industry. You know, the early adopters, and it's small volumes, but it finds its, its way into certain areas. There are behaviours in terms of mergers and acquisitions uh, by some of the medium to larger companies, which you can also observe, and what they're spending, whether it's their paper or their cash, uh, will give you a sense of where you are. And then, um, you know, you start to see more and more investors become aware. You see the IPO market open up, exploration starts to, or exploration spend starts to kick up. And then towards the end of the cycle, of course, you see some of the bigger deals, the really big things starting to happen. And uh, yeah, it caught, caught a lot of people by surprise, but uh, when Glencore listed in 2011, 
that was the biggest mining IPO ever. It was about 11 billion US dollars, which was uh, raised to list that company. And that was within a month of the peak of all of the global major mining indices. Now, I don't think there's any mysterious uh, coincidence about that at all. Buyer's remorse kicks in and a lot of money comes out of the market, which has just been freshly put in. And uh, before you know it, you've got a new trend. Uh, the big deals mark the top. Everybody thinking that it'll go on forever marks the top. And uh, well, I, I think you know what the bottom looks like uh, because we've just gone through it. It's pretty miserable, but it's generally preceded by capitulation where people just go, stuff it, I'm never investing in this ever again. And as soon as they say that, that's the signal that you'll start to see new growth in the industry. And you know, as, a, as an investment tool, you try to buy when things are cheap uh, with one eye on how long it's going to take them to evolve and then to sell them when you get to the top of the market. If you could do that every single time, it would be wonderful. It's a lot harder to say than it is to do uh, because you also need to superimpose on that the evolution of an individual company or a situation as well. So if you're a mining company, see, I mean, a lot of the things that you're talking about are quite readily available for people to put together. So is there an impediment to why mining companies don't act in this way in business planning? Well, listen to the rhetoric that they use. I think they are probably as susceptible as investors are to uh, particularly the peak conditions. But some of their behaviours, um, and it's selective, will start to give away that you're coming out of a bust as well. So, I mean, companies which had bucked the trend uh, recently, uh, independents making a large acquisition of Sirius uh, said, we believe in that asset, we believe in that company, and we are going to, we want to have it so that we can build that through the cycle. Uh, Northern Star and Evolution buying operating gold mines from some of the global majors said the same thing. We have confidence in the future. We believe we can get cash flow from this and make them make them last longer. So uh, there are signals from them where there are there is the aptitude to um, to be doing something which is perhaps counter-cyclical, or perhaps it's just taking advantage of, of what you see. And the symptom is that things are so cheap that these guys just can't help themselves but to try and acquire it. You know, whether it's conscious or subconscious, I'm not sure. The other thing to think about, though, is that um, in historic cycles, some of the global majors who have the lowest costs and the best cash flows and the best balance sheets, historically speaking, were able to take advantage of when there was blood on the floor and they could buy assets cheap. In the most recent bust that we've seen, we saw them hit the top with the most over-leveraged balance sheets that they've ever had. And instead of being able to act at the bottom, they were the ones who were putting their own blood on the floor by selling assets in order to try and fix their balance sheet. So we've seen a historical anomaly uh, at that stage. And we can assess history way back, but the most recent thing in our minds is that these miners really, really misjudged the cycle by uh, investing the way that they did and taking on as much debt as they did. Let's fast forward to, say, um a little while and uh, Headley, you're running your own company. What would you do differently? What would be things that you would do that people aren't doing? Well, I, I think it's imperative in a business like mining to always focus on having a cash profit. So uh, when you're operating something, you need to be able to take cash out of it. You're not just mining for practice. I mean, these things don't last forever. So you can't take two years to get it right. You need to be able to extract cash from it. Uh, so an accounting profit is great, but a cash profit is wonderful because that means you're succeeding. Uh, in deployment of that, whether it's a dividend paying back debt or in new initiatives, I think you need to be focused on the return on equity that that is going to deliver to the owners of the company okay. first and foremost. So that's something which few companies do well uh, and most of the market doesn't do probably at all. Uh, I'd be extremely cautious about leverage on the balance sheet. And with that, uh, you, you need to hedge in fair portions if you have some debt. Um, and I don't have an aversion to debt at all. Uh, but 
certain quantities of it can be dangerous. And uh, for that reason, you know, um, financial products can also be quite dangerous. We back miners to be excellent at what they do, and they are not investment bankers. Uh, so, you know, I'd be cautious of a mining company which looks too much like an investment bank. Uh, and my final thing, which I think I would strive for if I was managing my own mining business, would be to master that business. Be good at mining, because that's what you're being backed for, and make sure you can make money from your deposits. The interview you just heard was actually recorded almost a year ago. At that time, investor sentiment in mining was probably not as buoyant as it is right now. Some of you out there were probably still struggling to find jobs or any realistic opportunities in this industry. That does not seem to be the case anymore. Today is very different from a year ago. I guess that speaks to the nature of the beast we're dealing with, the rapid change in the cycle and the effect that it has on this industry we choose to work in. After talking to Headley, it seems like the cyclic nature of our industry is unavoidable. And it does not seem like that awareness is the problem. So if we all know that this is something we have to deal with, shouldn't we make more of an effort to do something about it? Aren't you tired of having to deal with these cycles? What do you think? Exploration Radio is brought to you by Steve in the Mart. Our producer and all-round go-to guy is Dan Hershowitz. This podcast is recorded at the Perth Music House. If you'd like to know more about Exploration Radio, check us out on explorationradio.com. Or you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And as always, if you like this podcast, please review us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, let's keep exploring.